Oh my goodness, hey, hi, it's Mike. Did you know that Abe and Bridget and me are trying to make a movie right now? Yes, right dang now. It's called Papa Bear and tells the poignant and hilarious true story of the time my dad came out as a gay furry when I was 17. Uh, if you care about that at all, please head to seedandspark.com slash fund slash papa hyphen bear to find out much more about the project, how you can be a part, and earn really cool rewards for helping us out. See you there. Here's your pod. Thanks so much. I kind of miss DreamWorks' animation style, actually. Like, that's yeah? A, yeah, I do. I, like, I, I only saw a few DreamWorks animated films in their heyday, but I kind of, I kind of appreciate that there is a, a little bit more of a fidelity to r- realism in some ways than like Pixar. Like, it's not as cartoony as Pixar, to me. I don't know if that's yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's like obviously they're big cartoons and there's DreamWork face, which is like a popular right. meme. Right, right, but right, right. Like, uh, there's definitely something of like that's what made them all look the same, and that's right. an easy to make fun of thing. But they were trying to do something different from like let's reinvent the uh, the artistic wheel yeah, every there, time. There's that's a, like a texture to them. That is that I feel like you just don't see in movies anymore. Like they, they yeah. definitely have their own like you know it's minor but unique sort of affectation that uh, is missing, and that's kind of unfortunate. It uh, does make me realize that like you know how like golden era of Disney animation nineties, uh-huh. yeah, Little Mermaid, yep. Aladdin, etc. Yep, they all had a sim- they have a similar look, and there's something they about do. the the legacy. Uh, where it's like, oh, they all look and feel the same. So, even so, if you like it, that means the next one that it already feels like a warm blanket, you know. Well, and I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead into your theory, uh, but I will say that one thing that struck me as I was reading it is uh, that Shrek Two is a little bit on an animation continuum that might start with Aladdin. Aladdin might be the first film that's doing some of the ideas that you're talking about in animation. That's interesting. Yeah. Considering that the director and writers of Shrek and Shrek 2, at least one, I think two of them, uh, wrote Aladdin. Did they really? Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, yeah. Wow, really? So mm-hmm. these, these guys just have sort of a way of looking at entertainment. That is uh, unique. That's interesting. Anyway, hi. Yeah. This is Director Peace Theater. I'm Adam <laughs> Ganser, one of your hosts. Uh, yeah! Shrekking it up. Shrekking it up with uh, the ogre of my eye. Uh, introduce yourself, ogre. And I, I, oh, yeah. I'm the ogre. I thought you were going to make me donkey, but uh, no, I'll be ogre. Sometimes you're a protagonist. Today, you're the protagonist. Yeah, I'm the protagonist. I'm Abe Epperson, yeah. and I have a theory. Yeah, you do. Uh that I want to bring to you all. And I'm excited As about per it. this show, I wrote a thing after watching a thing. 
Now I'm going to read a thing, and you're going to listen to a thing. <laughs> you're going to like that thing. And it's about oh. Shrek 2. I watched Sh- Shrek 2 recently. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> yeah. Shrek 2. Just want everyone to know that. And so, I, and I wanted, and it made me realize I was like thinking about comedy yeah. and like where we're at yeah, and like yeah, what, yeah. what are, what are the big, you know, broad strokes of comedy today and what were they 10 years ago and what were they 20 years ago? Because uh, it's is. coming up here on the 20 year anniversary of Shrek 2, 2004. That's dark. And it made me realize it put me in this kind of like 20 year perspective of comedy. I'm like, okay. Because 2004 is like kind of when I started. This is, I'm not saying that Shrek 2 caused me to be a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> but I will but say you, those words are the on the internet year. now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there's this, there's something about comedy at this time that it was very clear what like the trends were. And then we saw those trends kind of formulate and create new things, new trends. We get tired of old hats and throw them away. New toys appear. Uh, and you know, and I kind of want to put that in perspective about like where we're going and where where we been we are now yeah, we're, yeah. We're, yeah exactly we've been all that stuff and in order to dissect that i kind of had to think about okay like what are the contributing factors to what we would call comedy in this era and uh stumbled upon this term that some of you may have heard of called postmodernism. and how are they all shrek too <laughs> and so i wanted to talk about the postmodern masterpiece that is Shrek 2. Yeah. And I didn't pick Shrek 1. I noticed and that. And I'll tell you why later. I noticed that. Okay. I just want that to be intentional. Yeah. I picked Shrek 2 specifically. I want you to know this is my first exposure to what we're calling comedy, by which I mean Shrek 2, uh, <laughs> because I'd never seen it until this episode, which is often so you didn't true. Even know? Which is often, and, yeah, I've been working in comedy, never really knew what it was until today. <laughs> no, yep, yep, that's something we all knew. He's a savant in a way, um, I'm because kinda, he kept making great jokes, and we're like, you yeah. know what you're doing is comedy, and he's yeah. like, I don't know what that is. He's like, ah, don't bother me. Uh, I will say, I'm surprised how little Mike Myers does Scottish accent jokes there are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like Because uh, I'd seen Shrek 1, obviously, but like, uh, and I felt like there was a little bit of... Uh, not exactly this joke, but the hate no thing, you know? Like, there's a little bit of that. There's almost none of it in this movie. Donkey. Donkey. Yeah. yeah, there's almost no, like, it's funny that he's doing a Scottish accent. I think thing. it's because um, that was, they kind of, they played with that in Shrek 1. And so they're they were like, like, now let's do a new thing. Now we need a new thing. We're going to call it comedy. <laughs> Which I give credit to the writers. Compliments to the chef. Yeah. Always change it up, baby. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about There's here. four of them, by the way. There's four writers on this there, script. These movies were always made by committee. Yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah. I want to talk about postmodernism, and I want... Uh, a lot of people know what that is, but if you don't, let's kind of get into like the broad strokes or the way that I'll be talking about it, which is that, you know, obviously you have this concept of modernism. Uh, and so postmodernism is this reaction to what they thought modernism was, which was stuffy and upper class. And it kind of had these values or principles that are always true regardless of genre. These are the values. And you follow these things. And that's what story is. And so from a filmmaking perspective, um, 
the cinematic mechanics of modernism are basically things that came before. Um, and specifically in the eras where they were telling us these are what, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to do it. And uh, one of the things about postmodernism throughout what, throughout many artistic forms, you know, cause you got it in painting and whatnot. Uh, it's got an emphasis on the viewer is one of the big things you, because they want you to look at yourself as a participant in the art. You have a whole lexicon of cinematic knowledge. You've seen it all before, so to speak. Um, so when we get things that start cropping up in the nineties and early two thousands, like Simpsons family guy and like genre parodies, like naked gun, uh, these all contributed to this kind of uh, a single postmodernist tenet, which is referential humor. And usually it's done in the form of parody. Uh, and that's another way of saying, like, you're taking the wind out of the sails of whatever you're lampooning. Uh, it's also, I'll mention the era that we got, like Oscar shows did it in mass, you know, like yeah. uh, award shows, MTV uh, remember those MTV yep. uh, Jack Black, you know, oh, like yeah. sketches and stuff. Music videos even did it. I'm looking at you like Foo Fighters. Oh, yeah. Um, Arrested Development this, did a lot of this. Yeah. There's this big tendency to be like, you, the viewer, have a knowledge about like, I don't know, this. Remember, remember a scene in like a horror movie where it goes like this? And it's like, yeah, I do know that. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to act like you don't. So let's just quickly quote that. Now you're on. Now you're on the movie's level. Now it's play and break and do all these other things with it, and that's kind of like in a nutshell one aspect of postmodernism, and uh, and that's why in the '90s and 2000s we got this kind of swarm of references, uh, and they usually had an irreverent reference towards the tropes of the past, uh, and now we're all kind of like in 2023, we're all kind of postmodern babies making post postmodernists renewals of our own like it, who knows what we're doing but and that's probably a topic for another day uh just the concept of how revolutions of art kind of like tire the audience and how culturally we moved it to other things but at this time and seminal to kind of how we are now in comedy is this concept of debunking the value of playing to a certain expectation okay the concept of saying nah that throw that out, throw that out because that's a, a reference. That's a reference to a thing, and I don't give a shit about like the reverence of that reference. Let's just throw it all out. Um, and so, in order to do this, uh, the filmmakers behind Shrek Two used several techniques. Uh, I think that they did this, and none of this stuff is new. Arguably, this is as old as some of the tropes that they're subverting. But I want to talk about how Shrek Two rebuilds tropes and known sequences in the mind of the viewer by just using like at first like ad hoc mimicry using camera in the same way that the reference does uh, but it also can be less specific and based off the tropes um, like the expectations or fear of the audience to get them in that mentality of like oh I'm supposed to feel this way because the music's playing a certain way or something like that so there's different techniques you can use just to kind of get the audience in a right mindset. And then the next technique and what Shrek 2 really does and it's bread and butter really is, is subvert those tropes by 
just adding a punchline. And this is straight out of like the Simpsons or whatnot. It's uh, not only is this true, this trope that uh, we're talking about in the case of Shrek 2, it's the idea that fairy tales are a way to be successful and happy to live out the kind of preordained vision on rails of you're a princess and you marry a handsome prince and, yeah. and then you're going to happily ever, ever after. after. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what that is. So, That's what that means, right? Life on so, rails after that. Right. So in the true postmodern sense, Shrek 2 is saying that's not true. So not only are you going to use postmodern tactics, but the very thought itself we wish to subvert. Um, it's untrue to this world. And it's usually from a plot perspective, the opposite of what the catalog of tropes is usually implied. Like, so let's go back to like old, old style literature, classic literature. An evil person is also ugly, right? That was a thing. Yep. Uh, and then we just started to debunk that. And we said, well, you know, what about if we made a play about an ugly person, but they're a hero? <laughs> you know? <laughs> See, that's the thing. Arts, Art's never complex. That's like one of the things I always yell at the top of my apartment building. There's just a lot of it. It's just art is not that complex. <laughs> Certainly not pop uh, art like movies. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. For sure. So I want to kind of talk about how Shrek 2 does this. And it's kind of it's kind of amazing. I'm so excited. Um, I, I love so that you I picked fr- this movie for this conversation. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's so perfectly Abe. Uh, it's like you got us both on a tuxedo to watch Shrek 2. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. All right, great. We're gonna have we're gonna have steak and asparagus. Of course, and we're we are. Watch Shrek and too. it's gonna be the leanest, most French cut there is of steak. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm ready. And I'm I'm going to buy a fancy bottle of wine and then mm-hmm. tell you about like what I the smells I get yep. from it. That's an hour. But after I'm gonna this. be totally wrong. Yeah, I'm totally gonna be wrong. <laughs> You're not gonna know. I don't because nobody knows mm, anything about yes, wine. <laughs> I don't know about wine. Is something that I usually say into a wine glass. I don't know All about right. wine. So let's talk about this. And it's a term I couldn't find it on the internet. It's very strange because it was like ingrained in my head in, in my studies. Okay. This this phrase hyper quotationalism. Yeah. Um, which I think you can probably extrapolate what that means. It's it's and I certainly to, in critical theory books somewhere. It's somewhere. Yeah. But when I searched it for on the internet, I was like, where did this the origin of this uh, word come from? And it was like, I don't know. The internet was just like, I don't. <laughs> You're I've making never that heard shit that. up. You're making it up. And I was like, Are you are you catfishing me, Google? Um, so I want to kind of talk about that and how it how how you kind of like approach like pastiche or like spoofs, right? Um, and we'll get into parody in a bit, but I think there's a distinction between parodying something and outright just quoting it yep. because it's fun to do. Most Shrek jokes are hyper quotationalism. They're just kind of pastiche. Uh, it's just a reference to something in the, and then they like usually plug in something from the modern zeitgeist. Um, it doesn't play for any distinctive satire or even build a sequence to undermine your expectation. It's more of just a mashup than anything else, but it kind of still gives you the feeling that the storytellers are irreverent toward the source material or just in general, any source material in a way, because like everything's just whatever. It's fun. You can just, I don't know. You just throw, throw that reference in there and throw that reference in there. And there's so many examples of it. I would say that's ultimately the family guy aesthetic. 
you know, it, it's sort of uh, it's sort of this is by the way what South Park yeah. was so pissed off about at Family Guy is right. The, wow, say so the quiet part loud. I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> right? You're right though. Uh, you're right. Like you're it's right. it's quoting stuff of... without comment. Uh, there is legitimate satire, I'll say, 100%. in Family Guy, 100%. but like when you compare it to something like South Park or uh, The Simpsons, uh, not so much. The joke is uh, we did the thing, you know. Uh, a lot of aggrieved uh, comedians came out and lashed out against that. That's why we're kind of laughing about yeah. it. Is that like, yeah, it's people hate it because it became a dominant form of entertainment. I'm not here to really no, no, say I, what's... I, I'm just sort of putting a you. finger yeah. on like mm-hmm. a place this has been publicly talked about. Uh, right. And that's probably the most famous one. And I'll, give, I'll go through a few quickly in Shrek yeah, 2. Yeah, yeah. Like, right off the bat, Donkey, as they're traveling to Far, Far Away, which is that you know Shrek and Fiona, after the first one, they've fallen in love. They're ogres living in the swamp. And they are, and we get a little scene where it's like, hey, this is who they are, just to refresh you. But then they get the first, the inciting incident is they get a call from Fiona's parents to come back to Far, Far Away, which is where she comes from. Her parents, the king and queen, are basically want to see her because they haven't seen her. And they want to see, I think that at some point they're like, we also want to hear about your knight in shining armor. So, you know, it's guess who's coming to dinner. Um but Donkey, as they're driving through, sings Rawhide. I don't know why he's singing Rawhide. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. Uh, Far, Far Away itself, I think, is a reference to, I want to say, Star Wars, just because a galaxy far, far away. I think it's literally low-hanging fruit like that. Uh, in the f- Fairy Godmother's first musical number, we see like Prince Charles as a possible suitor in her mirror. It's just a basic knock on the royal family. I don't think it has any... There's no parody here. It's just, hey, look at that. That's funny. It'd be funny to think Prince Charles is like Prince Charming, right? Uh, at one point, we see um, Shrek kind of examining uh, Fiona's room that you know is still kind of uh, furnished with her childhood, you know, knick knickknacks and journals and whatnot. And there's a poster of Sir Justin, as in that Sir Justin Timberlake, incredible, which is perfect yeah why not uh (laughs) and it's just example of modern royalty and a modern prince so that kind of is getting into parody but i would say still no it's really just saying justin timberlake's here is he's he's here and he's handsome right and that's the problem right uh in the first attack from puss in boots he gets under shrek's t-shirt and he blasts out, and I think that's a reference to uh, the Xenomorphs and Alien, obviously, because oh, it's like yeah. literally the same place. And it's just like small stuff in general, like when escaping the potion room, Puss in Boots leaps under the collapsing door and quickly grabs his hat, a la Indiana Jones, or when Shrek slams the window at Prince Charming and Fiona when the when like uh, when she's taken the potion, uh, that's like feels straight out of the Graduate that shot. And, uh, it probably is, um, right? Like, I think so. He's like, Fiona! Yeah. And it's like he's he's hitting it at, in the same way that Dustin Hoffman hits it. And uh, Puss in Boots says at one point, I hate Mondays, which is just only funny because he's a tabby, orange tabby yeah, cat. Yeah, he's an orange tabby you know? cat, like, right. So it's just like, hey, that's funny. Um, so that's like a lot of the jokes. And it, that is what I would call hyper-quotationalism. It's pastiche. It's parody. Or it's not parody. It's more spoof. And um, another masterpiece we covered on this show is The Mask. 
<laughs> Thank you. And I would All say right. basically uh, <laughs> the late '90s were as dense with this. Were super dense with this in uh, a lot of comedies. Even going back to like Naked Gun, it never goes out of style because it's not contingent on you f- even following the movie. It makes for a high joke ratio, and it basically signals once again that nothing is sacred. But importantly, it's postmodern because it elevates the viewer as conti- like everything. The entertainment is contingent upon you, and what's more, you, the audience, than the modern zeitgeist. Uh, but this movie also does parody in a more, uh, in a different postmodern way, that the story arc itself and the aspects of the world are meant to satirize, kind of with a purpose, and this is where the theory starts becoming like, oh, is this actually really smart? Is this movie really actually smart? And I think it actually is. Because I want to talk about how they do irony and the why they do irony, which is the more important part. Um, so the replication of tropes that aren't necessarily distinctive references, but rather play on the expectations of several works in the past that have built our, you know, in our heads, our expectation towards a certain thing. Uh, like we... So that's something that is necessary for satire in order for us to understand, oh, they're actually, it's how metaphor works, right? Because it's like, oh, they're making it look like that. Oh, that, oh, now that I think about and it, that's true meaning. about the thing in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they're, so, they're actually using it in a commentary kind of way. Right. So there's two real ways to do this. One is direct parody and one is more of an indirect parody. And I don't mean like what they're what they're going for but more of like how they tackle the trope uh and i'll kind of like parody so we all recognize a particular branded iconography and that can just be in hyper hyper quotationalism but parody becomes something more when it's saying like okay there's a trope here i'm isolating that trope replaying it for you but that trope isn't necessarily something specific that you can identify from a particular movie, but it's something that I'm aware of just by being around stories for my whole life. So let's talk about the easy one first, which is that this movie does direct parody and it does a lot of them. And the first one does a lot of them, but this one does even more. Uh, One of the first ones we get is there's a red carpet sequence with Joan Rivers narrating the processions of celebrities for the far, far away ball. And it's on the Medieval Entertainment Channel, which looks like E, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of just, it's something I'm going to get into more when we talk about like why they're doing this. But basically what they're doing with Far, Far Away is they're showing how the superficial nonsense uh, that is Far, Far Away, it make, it's somehow alluring to people watching at home. And so it's kind of trying to, take the wind it's trying to it's once again trying to isolate the thing in which it wants to lampoon and the systems that are tertiary surrounding that system uh, or that like thing that that trope uh, that they're lampooning how to like, like let's take a artifact of it and let's parody that artifact so that people will know oh the metaphor oh the thing that they're making fun of is 
the topic. It's not necessarily uh, the the red carpet. Well, there's it's there's sort of the a red carpet says there's sort of a larger construct here that I think you're pointing at, yeah. which is that like they conceived of the land of far far away as Hollywood, exactly, and continued like they did so many references to Hollywood uh, that is not necessarily the way we would conceive of uh like a medieval kingdom from a from a fairy tale like like that construction has a lot of meaning in it that actually retroactively changes how the story feels Mm -hmm. like and again that's not the only way this story had to be constructed just from the script i would say does no it doesn't have to why is it la why is it la they they want to show it as a vapid shallow tourist trap They want it to be something that is easy to lampoon. They also, as filmmakers, have thoughts on L.A. And this is where the postmodernism kind of comes into. And that's more of an indirect parody uh, because it's mainly to point out that the facade of fairy tales and the expectations that love, wealth, happiness are easy are flawed and very surface deep. Um, We get another direct parody, which is uh, Cops slash Knights, which is fun as hell one of one of a trillion uh, parodies of cops there were so right. many uh, so many at the time because yeah. it's so easy to do because yep. it shows the kind of hilariously inappropriate coverage of the show cops while at the same time shows that it's a this place is a police state which right. is uh right. something it's wanting to point out uh there's a parody of mission impossible at one point uh where pinocchio breaks shrek shrek free and he mimics the vertical descent of Ethan Hunt while they play the music, literally. And it's one of the funnier sequences in the movie. They were That um, was the most on-the-nose quotation in the movie, I would say. That particular <laughs> that one. That's a Pinocchio pun. I love yeah. it. You, hey, you yeah. got it. Uh, you got it. Got it. Uh, the last one I want to point out is Frankenstein's sequence with the huge gingerbread man. Right. And he goes, it's alive. Uh, I almost put this in the hyper quotational section since I don't think it's saying anything other than a funny reference, but it's part of the plot. And I think it's important that where we're getting to this. Uh, is it a Stay Puffed? All these. Is it a Stay Puffed huh? reference? Is there a Stay Puffed reference there? Like it, there is a Stay There is, yeah, kind of a Stay Puffed I feel like they might have stolen too. a shot of Stay Puffed. Yeah, it's that that actually probably would go in like the indirect parody yeah. kind of vibe. You're absolutely right cuz there's that's the other thing that the the filmmakers are really good at is they kind of com- they pastiche like uh, several things together at once. Yeah, they can kind uh, of merge a real life reference, a movie reference and the plot of the movie together in one scene or shot in a, in in yeah. a very seamless way. It's actually pretty impressive. Another example of that very thing and an example of indirect parody is like Fairy Godmother's workshop is stacked with indirect references to Willy Wonka's chocolate yeah, factory, right. like the way the walls look and like the the humdrum workers, like the Oompa Loompas. Um, yeah. And so, and that kind of, that's the thing is that the indirect parody now starts forming where we can kind of infer that she's evil. They all kind of have a purpose now. Um, also when the fairy godmother, speaking of how she's evil, abducts the king to like, remember, we have a deal. You're a frog. And at any time I can turn you back, um, there's thugs in the car and it's just generally referencing gangster movies. Like she's 
now aligned in our mindset as the far, far away mafia, basically. Well, um, so like, again, I, I think you've wisely put your finger on the pulse of a really important critique here, which is like, they, they're so detailed in lampooning Los Angeles that mm-hmm. you kind of have to feel like what they're, they're actually telling us more about Los Angeles than we want to know. Like, like the idea that right. the idea that she actually is a uh, sort of a thug with like a, a cabal of, you know, mafia types is telling us something we probably don't want to know about Los Angeles. Right. And yeah, if you think they, they might, yeah. like if you, by the way, as a movie viewer, don't think this is explicitly Los Angeles, I need you to know the entire town looks almost identical to third street promenade. And it's not an accident. Yeah. It's like that is Third Street Promenade. That's what it's supposed to and be. And Third Street Promenade is known for being the most manicured street, yeah. basically. Almost next every to some sections of Sunset. Yeah. Some sections of Sunset in the entire LA. Almost area. every promenade in every major city is basically modeled off of Third Street Promenade <laughs> because it's like the mecca of that. You're such a homer. I, I well, it. I am a homer. You're right. I am an LA homer, but I'm saying that because it's true though. Like, you know, I think you're probably right about that because uh, L.A. versus any other town in the world has influence in a unique way on the zeitgeist of other areas because just through the movies and storytelling and all that. I'm sure that L.A. didn't invent promenades. New York is the other one. Yeah, right. You know, I'm sure L.A. didn't invent promenades, by the way. Like, don't at me if there's one in France or something that's more famous. Uh, I'm just saying that (laughs) I'm saying that right now, zeitgeist wise, the promenade is like an iconic spot and they clearly are. one in France. Isn't it a French word? It probably is. I think that's that's probably a sealed deal right there. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a promenade in France. Uh, I don't want to hear it. See, we're smart guys. We're smart guys. I don't want to hear it. You should listen to us. (laughs) we know uh, everything about movies. <laughs> no, but I want to finish outlining I, these I do too. Uh, indirect I, parodies. I just want to like sharpen the thing I'm saying. So like mm-hmm. that, like uh, in some ways, like everything kind of retrofits to this is actually a critique of Los Angeles and the Hollywood culture. And there's so yes. many retrofits that actually tell us more about Hollywood than you'd think because of that. Yeah, another you know? one is the. F- the Farbucks coffee it's so joke. Good. People run yeah, from it's Farbucks great. to another one just to escape the uh, <laughs> across the, the street uh, gingerbread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, and at that time, that was like a tight, fresh like joke. And it you was know, true. Like, uh, Starbucking is now just a term for it. Um, but yeah, that so there's a lot of auxiliary world building parodying being done, and this is all indirect because it's not specifically saying like you know that one scene and that one you know like an alien when he bursts out of his chest. You know, it's not doing that. It's just doing general kind of parody work, and I, this is all leading up to something. Last one I want to mention because Puss in Boots is important to the story, uh, even in a postmodern way, is that the build up they build him up to be an Aragorn type, right? You know, right. which it, they don't parody the exact scene, but we are aware through things like Lord of the Rings because it just came out two thousand one. I want to say, right? Was Fellowship? Yeah, it was right around that time. That scene yeah. where Aragorn is this dark, shadowy figure in a bar, and the king goes to the bartender to find him, and we get this poetic speech building up the danger and fear that uh, Puss in Boots solicits, and the this sets up so that the eventual punchline we see later and the the clarity of day that it's just uh the dark shadowy figure is just he's a little kitty cat cat. and they're gonna do more with that played wonderfully by antonio banderas 
It's great. It's great. Yeah. It's one of the funniest parts. There's a the lot movie. of Mask of Zorro uh, quotes in this movie, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, a movie that, we've also... Again, hyper-quotationalism. A movie yeah. we've also... A masterpiece we've covered on we this podcast. have talked podcast. about the Mask of Zorro. Yeah. You're right. Something I want to note uh, before we move into like the real meaty stuff is that I wanted to note that parody can be... I think it's important for people who do seek kind of like clarity on parody uh, is that it can be an action or a series of film mechanics, but it doesn't have to be both. In the case, like, let, let me explain what I mean. In the case of Puss in Boots bursting out of Shrek's shirt like a xenomorph, the shot isn't important. There's no musical cue. What's important in that reference is the bursting out of the shirt, the action itself. So the movie doesn't go to painstaking, you know, like, uh, it's, it's a medium close up. That moment. It's got to be a medium close up. Right, right. No, it right, doesn't right. care. Exactly. It's just like no. You just you'll get it as a part of the other stuff. Right. And whereas the cops parody is there's no action that really would make it feel explicitly like cops. Maybe there's some blocking that a uh, you know some cops could do or whatever. But it's strongest when it's more of like it's a video filter, camera zooms, the soundscape, the music. And uh, I think it's important that the filmmakers are able to identify what makes a parody connect with us and doesn't attempt to do anything else. It just doesn't overstay its welcome. It says, like, what do you need? What's the quickest way for me to universally get everyone onto that's the parody that I'm doing? Well, decide if it's an action. Decide if it's a a format. Once you know that answer, follow that. Fucking get they out. definitely distill their references down to what is the most essential thing that needs to be shown <laughs> yes. to get the joke here. And they don't care about the rest of it enough to do more. Than and that's one of the other things that it's like creating film by committee is actually kind of awesome. Yeah. Because I think you just throw jokes the best idea has to, you just throw jokes out until the best one it's wins. How most, you go, okay, that's the only one. Most comedy stuff is improved by a committee of writers at least. Yes, you know, like I would say, yeah, uh, uh, most type of comedy, most types yeah. of comedy, right? With some, with some rare exceptions, but like, uh, like it, all of this is really sending me back to The Simpsons, uh, and why yep. The Simpsons is That's so right. important because it, like The Simpsons is really pioneering a lot of these techniques in adult television. You mm-hmm. know, uh, anyway. Another, so let's talk about also one of the things that's near and dear to the Shrek franchise and to postmodernism itself is uh, this beneficial trick that uh, a lot of modern parodies use, which is trope kind of awareness and character self-consciousness. The characters themselves think like we think about their lot in life. So let's look at a few Like they share a modern sensibility? Is that what you mean by that? They... They think like so. so someone who was so now we're talking tropes, right? Okay. And let's yeah, take yeah. the first example of the barkeep in that bar in the Aragorn kind you of. Yeah, that one is the ugly stepsister, right? So there's a self awareness about the concept of the ugly stepsister in those stories, right? Which is that she's ugly and she basically sucks, um, and that's silly. So in order to kind of subvert that first off they give us a very confident person um who doesn't really care but more importantly they reference like their name is the ugly stepsister and it's not said in a derogatory term it just seems to be their name so they're coming at so they're coming to their 
like if you think as the characters thinking they are their thoughts are more akin to our thoughts watching their stories than it is to a real person leaving that story does that make sense so like i guess and forgive me i'm not trying to quibble with you here like i feel like that was they were making a trans joke here right isn't i think they kind of are doing a trans joke here yeah so like uh, so maybe there's a unibrow. Well, I feel like it's yeah. expre- expressly there. Like that's the joke here, right? Is that like it's the ugly stepsister because she's trans? Yeah. So exactly. there's something a little bit. So in this case, I think it it is a derogatory joke in that respect. It is a derogatory but joke, and yeah, the character really, does. Em- it's not a great. Yeah, 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 yeah. The character does embrace it, and that's unique to this. That's that's the consciousness. Yeah, that I, I, I see what you mean. Talk about yeah the character, but that's just an example of like how they first do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. A better example would be the first fight with uh, Puss in okay. Boots. There's a story with Puss in Boots that I think really exemplifies how the postmodern kind of pastiche works, which is that the first fight ends with him choking on a hairball, right. and we just see a classic animation. It's not really a parody of anything it's just a reference to you know how cats look when they're throwing up and it's kind of great because it shows how the movie can kind of do anything it wants and zig and zag at its own whim because first off if we follow the beats they built up the expectation that puss in boots was like a savage killer and then they undermine it with oh he's a cute kitty cat and then they go oh looks like he's actually a savage killer Oh, and now, no, no, he's just a cat, and he he suffers cat problems and has hairballs. And then finally, we get a moment where we get Puss in Boots, uh, like, he does his classic eye thing, where he, like, is super, super cute, which is hilarious and great. But all this goes to show that, like, some character development isn't really sacred. It's not a bad thing. In fact, it endears them to us. It makes us basically look at them and go, oh, they're messy and can be one thing at one moment and one thing at another moment, and that's all fine. And that's very near and dear to what Shrek 2 is trying to say, is that, is that there's no one blueprint to life, right? And that's very postmodern. Uh, there's, no one, there's no one way to do any fucking thing uh, there's no categorization that matters. There's no res- there's you know? no trope that restricts other tropes. Like they can, this character can be both of these things, even if they're somewhat contradictory. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And like that's that's fine because that's who he is. And in some ways, that's how it, life is. So like, right? Postmodernism is actually more true as a story technique in this way. <clears throat> and that's why I think it came to fruition in the late 90s and 2000s because that was very near and dear to the zeitgeist at the time and it still is um it's just this is 2004 um when shrek arrives at the fairy godmother's workshop he gets past the reception desk by posing as a representative of a magical workers union knowing that she definitely is benefiting from the hardship of others which is another like you know, not only is it, it's kind of like Comrade Shrek, but it's right. also like uh, it's specifically trying to point out the type of people who have power are people who manipulate. Uh, and that's something that they're it's because they say there's one way to do things. That's their manipulation. That's interesting. Uh, fair, 
fairy godmother pulls out uh some books uh at, at one point to prove like citing different fairy tales you're not any of these fairy tales you don't right. have you therefore ogres don't get a happily yeah. ever after and so she's aware of the totality of who she is in written form she's seeing herself from a zeitgeist perspective not from a real life like we're supposed to believe and suspend our disbelief that this is a real person she literally is throwing tomes of her history at she's him. quoting media at him as though he yeah. is bound by media but she is not exactly uh and that's, that's interesting that's the rub yeah. that's the postmodern like fuck right. you uh, and in general, in the movie, most NPCs, uh, I would call them, uh, just aren't happy in their life. They got the shit in the stick. At one point, there's like two tree ants or whatever, like arm wrestling and one of their arms breaks. You know, uh, the, I love the I love that scene uh, in the bar because there's also the headless horseman who's a drunk and he like hiccups and spits out some beer. Like we're displaying them with. Like we want to show them with their kind of you know uh, their guards down. Show them in a, if you will, like in a casual yeah, moment. a little bit. Yeah, <clears throat> in a casual moment because it's funny and that's haha Shrek jokes, but it's all kind of leaning towards one thing, which is to say that this is a bad system. Uh, the last one I like is that uh, Pinocchio. They use Pinocchio in a clever way in this movie because uh, once he descends, a la Mission Impossible. Uh, he has to get one of the mice over to, uh, to, because he's suspended in the middle of this oubliette. So he has to like make his nose long, and so he he they keep doing a joke about him, you know, telling a lie about wearing women's underwear, and yeah. uh, it's not exactly an intended use of his nose powers, I guess, but like there he's aware of telling a lie will get them out of this situation. Other characters around him are saying, "Hey, right. just you know do your lies thing. So you, know you. you know your, you know your you know deal, your Pinocchio." Like uh... exactly. So it's kind of embracing the archetypes and the categorization, but at the same time saying, "Like, like it's an essential part of postmodernism and stories like this that characters are self-aware in this way. Because if they're not, then it's just like people dunking on people, you know, just Which making fun of the tropes." Which is boring yeah. and mean spirit, and, and I mean also like uh, it's not part of uh, it's not part of the 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 history of these kind of references before they were postmodern quotations either. Like references right. always started out as a kind of a reverent uh, nod at the thing mm -hmm. that you're referencing. Oh my, yeah. right? And I think they're still doing that here, pretty much. You know. Yeah, that's the that's the thing is we kind of found an like there's a time where we found a pretty good place to like do both. It's very strange, and I think that there there's a reason why they do it and how they do it is in interesting as well because it's very simple. I'm gonna get into it uh, in a second, but I just is one last thought on the character's self like seriousness or self consciousness is it adds to the effect that the system that everyone's playing the rules of make no sense. Uh, which, you know, as I mentioned, is a very postmodern principle. The definition of things become, in a postmodern world, inclusive versus uh, exclusive. And the whole arc in the movie is based off the self-consciousness of the movie. That Prince Charming was supposed to save Fiona, but Shrek did. It was how it was, quote, supposed to be. 
um, that's what they're fucking with. And that is kind of a, that's when we get, when parody gets good is when it becomes weaponized kind of subversion. And it's also in this movie, which is why I keep pointing out that it's like, this might be sneaky good is that it's at the heart of the movie. Like it's literally the arc itself. Um, so the theme of Shrek two, and really the whole series is that in order to be happy, the question is, do you have to fit in a particular box? And of course, the series posits that you do not, that happiness is not based off the artificial and normative system of fairy tale expectation, but rather just embracing yourself and foiling the agents of that expectation or, or the, the agents of them at that normalcy. Uh, and it's literally in the case of Shrek 2, which is why I chose Shrek 2 versus Shrek 1, uh, it is literally a postmodern fairy tale. This is the main arc of this movie covers Shrek and Donkey becoming charming, like Prince Charming and a beautiful stallion by drinking a potion that expires at midnight. The subversion is literally the Cinderella story, but it's a male ogre, I guess. Now, Shrek 1 also plays with those tropes, but they change details. It's more of like there's a princess in, the, in a castle and there's a dragon uh, and he's going to get saved by a knight and it's fate. Uh, but like, what if it was an ogre? So that's changing a detail of the story. This is different. This is literally saying, what if we took the Cinderella story and made it true, but in a completely different way? And that's the the postmodernism aspect of this mm. mo- of this movie. I think is um, you know, telling us specifically these are the things that the movie actually means to say. Uh, versus this is just the n- nonsense hyper quotationalism just doing making you laugh so i want to look at that part and i just want to like so when you watch shrek 2 again how does the movie signify beats that are like our characters in turmoil or like real conflict in other words the movie moments that like wish us to sympathize with shrek and fiona and you know at all um because this barrage of referential humor is really just going for a laugh and you need something to be like, okay, so what, what's the heart of this movie? And the film does it very simply. It's not a, it's not a complex thing. Art is not complex. It basically builds sequences of heart or reference for the story. Uh, basically like all films, uh, they basically build a they build reverence and heart in those in certain ways and it's mimicking those films this is something that is also postmodernist you know just the concept that like okay we're mimicking all these other films so what do we need to do when we're trying to you know uh, recreate heart uh or like meaning well what do other films do let's parody that as well that's interesting uh, in a way so like does that mean does that mean um because they're because this film has structurally embraced a kind of grab bag of quotationalism as it's like I think it needs to so then stay yeah in so it has land, to stay yeah. in that to do uh, I think so otherwise it would feel stuff. weird yeah like yeah you can't like pivot away from it to do like now we're gonna be sincere this is not gonna be a quote it's gonna be original to Shrek which is why you do get a lot of those random spoof jokes yeah. in these sequences yeah. that have heart because they're easy one-off well, and you can just drill they out. They create a kind of continuity between the different aesthetics. 
Exactly. So continuity is very important because yeah. even when it's sincere, it's already broken the fourth wall of replicating tropes so often. Uh, so it can continue to rep- replicate those tropes, but now it's a replication of montages and sequences in movies that we recognize as emotion emotionally significant, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, music is really helpful for this. Uh, the movie opens with a Counting Crows song, yeah. accidentally Counting love. Crows, Counting yeah. Crows to show the real love between Shrek and yeah. Fiona. That's a that that's a honest beat. We're supposed to believe that, yeah. right? Uh, there's another moment where Shrek has a crisis of fi- like faith in the marriage uh, because in the first night he's staying in Far, Far Away, uh, he doesn't think that he's necessarily the proper husband to a princess. And we hear an eel song, uh, I Need Some Sleep, which is a very sullen track. Um, while he examines her childhood life in Scrapbook, um, not, none of which picture anything resembling her life with Shrek. So we get right there. That's the, you know, conflict. And then we get a legitimate heart wrenching score for the sequence that transforms Shrek into the, into like a charming Prince, which is kind of the cost and like the premise of the movie. So it's almost like the movie puts goggles on in these moments and says, this is important now, which breaks the very format of classic storytelling. You're not supposed to do that because that would break the suspension of disbelief. So once again, this is a postmodern trait. Interesting. Because so, it's kind of also the opposite, too. It is it is what you're saying, and it's also the opposite. It is. It's doing right. the movie trope you now. Can, you know? The thing about breaking systems, if you make a system of breaking systems, it's still, it's still a, system. a system. Right. You can never get away from it. Right. If you want this to be so, coherent, you know? Yeah. You have to make something that's entertaining, right. is the other thing that right. they're doing. So they have to make fun of themselves. Now, I really do see a kind of nail in the coffin. Uh, like, I kind of want to talk about now, or I just had some last-minute conclusions about like where we are now and where Shrek was at, in 2004. Uh, I feel like this is the nail in the coffin of like subversion tactics of this era. I'm not saying it died after this. I am just think that they like reached the heights, and then there was no like beating this. I think Shrek 2 did it. And there's things that did it before, but after this, we kind of left it. Um, if you look at the movies, I think Shrek and Shrek Two are more sneaky, influential than in, influential than we assume. I know it's not the first, nor it's the last, but in 2004, we kind of got this masterpiece of postmodernism that, like, is both in its point and by its actions and mechanics postmodernism through and through and then we said all right enough of that we're going to play with something else um because we got a few more attempts to cash in on the enterprise but then it fizzled out we got like tropic thunder which does a lot of this zoo the zoolanders do a lot of this but then like the 2010s hit and we can't we embrace this like meta conversation where we got more a little bit more personal because we didn't want to disguise ourselves as tropes or define ourselves as archetypes which is a postmodern trait but we didn't want to think of ourselves as tropes like we didn't want to even talk about the tropes being wrong uh, a movie i think about when i think about this aspect is i think 2010 or maybe 11 kick ass yeah, have you seen course. that it's kind yeah. of a and that kind of jump started that era super bad as well where it's like we're not making fun of the old like this is a mo- this is a parody but it kind of isn't because it doesn't really parody 
the tropes of the thing that it's coming from. It's not because even postmodernism is still obsessed with it, modernism. Postmodernism right? is That's, still definition. It's still reacting to something. Exactly. Kind of, which is, I think, we're, we're, we moved we're away leaving from that. that behind. Yeah. Like if you watch things like most Marvel movies now, uh, like they're all kind of mm-hmm. leaving uh, the grounding of the thing that they're reacting to behind. Like I would, I think I yeah. would argue the multiverse itself as a concept is a postmodern construct. You know, yeah. and like people bring up like Rick and Morty. Of course, definitely still had parody of episodes, but think about how much time and his intention is in creating something new. I don't think that's like necessarily a bad thing that like, that's where we are. I'm saying like, that's where we are right now. And like the modern perspective that we've left this kind of postmodern kind of involvement. We've left this version of postmodernity. I would say we're still in postmodernity because yeah, Yeah. like I would call Rick and Morty ultimately like the most postmodern thing we've done so far in some ways. Because it's no longer interested in doing narrative. It's only interested in talking about the tropes of narrative. You know? Yeah, that I think it's a new form of something. But I, I definitely there's definitely postmodern traits yeah. in it. And I think for all the reasons that we've been talking like later, about. Like later you think later uh, film historians will call it some other thing that's not postmodernism? I think so. I think okay. that I, can see I think that. whatever thing they define whatever period we're in, you know, we talked about we've talked a lot about uh, post cinema. Um, I think they'll say there's postmodern aspects of it, but I don't think they'll call it thoroughly postmodern in the same way that like Shrek Two is or Naked Gun is. In that um, it's in that it's abandoning the endeavor to do a story right. by way of trope, nodding at tropes. <clears throat> yeah, I think what I mean is that like films these days, uh, or at least in the late 2010s to 2020s. Um, films didn't as much react against being something, but asserted that an ex a genre or an expectation has nothing to say about your identity. Right. Like the game is so rigged that like who gives a shit uh, in any particular way? We aren't even going to compare ourselves to what we're quote supposed to be. We're just going to be ourselves and have fun. And I look at like things like The Hangover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it becomes clear to me that in ge- in uh, in that ge- in genre of comedy in general, it's become less important to subvert a tactic. Um, it's That's ju- true. You know, it's it's more yeah. about the jokes, and it's just the jokes, and about people having a good time and getting. You know, they usually have a point. It's like being together is great. You know, it's something simple, but ultimately, it's not trying to say like you. You remember how that movie came out and like everyone thought that thing about that thing. Well, fuck that. Yeah, movie. Well, here's a dumb, and I'm yeah, going to make here's a how it's to dumb or stupid spit in its face. And this is not something that hasn't like happened, not happened in the past or won't happen again. It's just a noticeable pivot in movies that I think we've made. And then in the 2010s, we kind of got the it kind of things changed because we got the middle tier budget comedies just died a pretty steep death. But the TV middle tier budget movies on. died a steep death. Right. And uh, and in the postmodern kind of uh, archetype, I think what we got after like post, um, I mean, I would say like the first version of it would be like a Seinfeld. And I yeah. think that's directly connected to something like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is still on the air. But that's a different. That's a postmodern ethic. Something like Ted Lasso right now, 
like to being made today or Abbott Elementary, uh, it's not necessary. We don't need like assholes to laugh at. We don't need to look at like a look at a format and say, oh, okay, these. Because like if you look at like Seinfeld, it was like look at Cheers, look at Married at Children, look at um, any number of these old comedies, TV comedies. Uh, they're all fucking like assholes, right? Uh, that was the posit of Seinfeld, and it, much. they made a show about yeah, nothing much. because they were like, "How insignificant can we make these people?" And then we went and ran with it in the craziest way possible till we got to like you know South Park and It's Always Sunny. But like anyway, the who it's unclear where the next pivot will be or how long like feel good comedies will be dominant over the like It's Always Sunny type assholes or the workplace documentary style like uh the office uh and it's especially hard since things seem to only speed up in comedy recently from what i think is due to the referential humor of the internet but who knows that's a whole nother topic whatever the case my conclusion is that the bread and butter of shrek and shrek 2 are indicative of that movement in comedy films away from a particular genre of comedy and more towards the postmodern ethic of movies uh, kind of like how The Simpsons did and such. But that doesn't make Shrek 2 any less of a like postmodern masterpiece because like every part of its DNA is specifically this one thing. And it's kind of it, great. And it still and believes in... It. It's, still, it's still trying to do a movie. You know what I mean? Like it hasn't abandoned doing a movie. Like, like creating no. the emotions and story catharsis of a movie. It's just going about it in an entirely quotationalist trope, trope acknowledging uh, anti-structuralist uh, methodology. So, yeah, yeah. And, but there are things that are abandoning doing a movie now. You know, like Shrek 2 is not doing that. Like, I, I, and I'm not trying to like, I, so everything you said is great and mm-hmm. I love it. But again, like, and I know people got mad at me about this, but like Ant-Man, this most recent movie, is I think in some ways abandoning doing a movie. You know, like it's it's not even yeah. really, it's really just sort of like, here's all the plot elements and the one thing you need to retain as a thing that's actually- here are our favorite scenes. Yeah, that's actually yeah. ancillary to the plot. It's that this guy showed up and you know these details now. Uh, right. You know what I mean? Like it's almost, it's almost like- uh, the story is a very thin veil for a different endeavor that's not a story endeavor. You know, I mean, that's, that's a right. that's yeah. a very negative way of talking about a movie that I know people love and I and like and good for you, you know, but uh on a continuum about how do we tell a meaningful story, that's I feel pretty far on the other end of that spectrum where like they're not really doing a story in some ways. Yeah, they're not playing by the rules that we've come to accept, which is that's right. You know, yeah, they're that's not subversion. It right? could be the whole idea yeah. is you need to subvert something. Uh, and what's something? Well, usually what's there or in power at the time. We can still love it. It can still be valuable. It's just anti-traditionalist. That's correct. Um, that's absolutely correct. As long yeah. as it works, you know what I mean. And by works, I mean like it. It creates uh, the feeling that stories give us. Right, and I think that's something that everyone will decide for themselves what works. To a degree. It's highly subjective. To a degree. Uh, and then but also yeah, not to a degree. Also, you know? Not to a degree in that like some things are very popular. Shrek's did amazing. 
they did very well because people were very thirsty for him. Now, of course, we can all play that game where it's like, okay, so uh, if you were Shrek 2 were to come out in 2023, would it do no. this well? No, of course not. No, it's, it wouldn't. We're not primed. The, the culture is not designed for this kind of thing now. I would say you could still do a, a, a successful rendition of it. God, you could do a great version of it at any time. Anyone can do a great version of something, but um, it, like it's the lightning rod. It's, it's the idea it's that being it's being in touch with the the audience that's going to see it. Is you know what I mean? Like yes. Like, uh, I think Shrek Two, from well, all I can tell, understood who was going to see it and what they wanted to see, and made a movie made right. a movie like that. You know. Um, and and I, I that's neither yeah. good nor bad. Ultimately, this is entertainment, and entertainment can be as simple as smashing two action figures together if people like watching it. Right. You know? And I think that until like two thousand eight, we got Iron Man, and then we we you know it became a whole n- new type of storytelling ethic. Um, but I mean, like the Harry Potters were happening during this. Lord of the Rings were happening during this. We got a lot of like. We also at the same time, that's the other thing is that I think culture has to do this thing where it see it has two sides of itself. It has to enjoy the 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 classic, the modernism, and it has to be postmodern at the same time because that's just how our brain it needs works. both voices. Like we, it needs both yeah. voices. We need to make fun of the like we can have reverence for, you know, Frodo and Sam, but then at the same time, just dunk on them left and right because it's funny to do so because they, because people have reverence for it because it's a good thing. You know, it was a, uh, important for a lot of people. Lord of the Rings, very important. So like, I don't know. I, I think that we, we never got that like time sense that 2004 time, that prime, you know, two things going on at once. That I'm not saying that it won't happen again, and I'm not saying that. You know, oh, I think our I whole think... young adulthood was that. Yeah, it, like I, I think Seinfeld and Aladdin and a lot of the '90s, right? And certainly a lot of the t- 2000s was all this stuff, right? You know, and like, I it... think uh, this is like right. This is like it kind of shut down after this, right? That's what I think I'm trying to get to, or that's my theory. Uh, and that's an auxiliary sort of a... theory to, you know, Shrek is postmodern, but uh, that's kind of what I wanted to say. If we're, like, labeling where film and comedy in particular is, uh, I would say, in some ways, comedy is no longer feeling beholden to comment on anything but itself these days. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, there's... Like, yeah. Uh, like even Rick and Morty, which is always doing tropes about tropes, uh, like isn't as concerned with like commenting on. Remember that thing from Spider Man? No, that's all. exactly right. That's why I said it's not you know? very postmodern uh, because it's not. It's not saying like, oh, uh, it wants to think of the next joke. That's the thing, right? Like Rick and Morty and stuff like Rick and Morty. It's still, it it's will still make fun of itself and say, oh, we're going to do 300 episodes, Marty. Oh, you know, like that's right. It's making fun of itself that itself is a parody. So it's this like inception kind of thing where, or it's rather, I should say, an Ouroboros kind of deal. Yeah. Where it's, it's eating its own tail instead yeah. of eating some other tail. Um, 
Well, I think that it, that's actually what sort of feels like makes it feel like it's actually locked in postmodernity in some way. Like certainly philosophically. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that's the thing with like all these terms that we use for to describe art is that it's all just spectrum and we divide these lines randomly at this one parameter. It's just to try to say, make a meaningful yeah, you're right. way of talking the, about it. And I don't even overlap. know. Well, I mean, like philosophically, it all comes from this same sort of belief of that that the postmodern philosophers have defined fairly clearly in the sixties and such <clears throat> before, right? Like it's all derivative of that. And uh, I don't know, you know, I'm not I'm not a savant on philosophy. I haven't read the newest coolest papers, but I don't think anyone's moved into a new phase of philosophy yet. I haven't seen that or heard. It. <laughs> I feel like, yeah. Once we had a, I mean, the the new thoughts are probably being had, chasing new. Uh, new data on like things like technology stuff that's changing in our world. One presumes uh, comedy that it's... doesn't really change. And once the internet was made, uh, basically that's what I'm kind of alluding to. 2004, there was the internet, but then the internet really started to hit. Like we got, we started freebasing that shit later in the 2000s, you know? And that's when we didn't need movies to do things like Trek 2 did because we had memes, you know? It, we we were sated in a way. I think most of uh, you know people who would go to you know a zeitgeist movie like this. I don't know. These are made for children. I'm just saying. Like a lot of these jokes. I aren't think for they're children. made to work on a children's level, but also the postmodern aspect of it is so that an adult audience can also appreciate. Also enjoy. It. Like in yeah. like in entertainment, in a way, postmodernity is a, is a way of making your project feel more mass market you know what i mean like yeah, that's exactly kind of a that was what that's, that's what's so clever about it you know that's kind of what's clever about it yeah yeah uh it's because i think it's sensational it's always it's always trying to approach it for like okay you audience what are you looking for like the second that we had like duchamp say like this is not a pipe became the most popular fucking thing right because it was like what of course, what? Of course. and i i don't think that it's we've really traveled that far to all right what do they think is funny oh do a matrix joke why because matrix is like the biggest thing in the world so that's going to make it sensational they're going to have a reaction to it they're going to love us because we're specifically speaking their language well i agree i i yeah i think i think in that way entertainment will always trail whatever sort of pillars of meaning and language that our society constructs itself around and we're sort of in a place still of uh, this. These words are going to sound judgmental, but of uh, unraveling our structure, our meaning structures. I think we're still doing that culturally, uh, and as a result, uh, entertainment's still reflecting that. You know, it's just yep. more. I think it's more interesting in a social context these days than in like a meta narrative context. Uh, but not everybody agrees with that. Look at Marvel. I think Marvel is like, no, no, it's actually only interesting if you build a world and then tear it apart uh, in ways that are that make everything meaningless, but also could make anything possible. That's the experiment they're under right now. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that has to deal with. Man, we should really do another episode of uh, Escape from the Multiverse. We should do one about Marvel. I honestly, I feel like Ant Man might be a good one 
to talk about multiverse. Probably. <laughs> yes, um, you just keep coming back to doing podcasts I, about Ant-Man. I know. It, it, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to spoil all the things that Dave and I said in that podcast uh, or all the thoughts that went into that podcast. But I will say, I actually think Ant-Man is a pretty good barometer for uh, what entertainment is about right now. Kind of state of the union. I mean, what are we willing to spend the most money on to generate income? You know, like uh, that. If as long as it's not Avatar, you know, I mean, like Avatar, I would say is really more. What is James Cameron up to? Yeah, (laughs) just a maniac's dreams. What is what does James Cameron want to do? Is what Avatar is about. And congratulations, he's wonderful at making money. He's so good at it. Uh, But Marvel feels like it's more structured around what do the movie going audiences pay for and what are they willing to pay for? That's right. That's the question. And that's the question. But uh, I just wanted to bring that theory to you. Yeah. I loved it. I just wanted to be like, Hey man, is Shrek two secretly really consistent and thorough and secretly terrifying? Uh, Yeah. yeah, No, I think you, I, I actually, the more that I thought about what they're saying about Hollywood, the better right. I th- thought this movie is. Yeah. Like actually all the hyper quotationalism becomes more of a direct parody when you put it in the blanket of this is them talking about how Hollywood is uh, the wrong place to find happiness. Right. Like that's what the movie's about. I would argue yep. more than it's anything else. Hollywood does not create are... happiness, you know? Yeah. They're, they're just make them ups. It's a facade. Baby. Yeah, facade baby. Here in Tinseltown, where That's I live. <laughs> where we all strive in the joke minds. And we're and we're happy, right? We're happy. I'm, I'm as right, happy Adam? as I can be right now, Abe. <laughs> as happy as I can be. Uh well, you know what? Here's what I suggest to all you listening. If you're not happy, Stop by patreon.com slash small beans. <laughs> throw us a few dollars and you can access all of our exclusive content. And that's buy just happiness. For, we got a paywall going, everybody. <laughs> buy some happiness. You can do it. No, if you're stuck behind the free feed, you do get a lot of our stuff, more than most uh, Patreons, I would say, or Patreon accounts. But there is still a ton of cool stuff you can uh, listen to, including our newer shows. One was mentioned in this podcast, Escape from the Multicurse, where we discuss our current fascination with multiverses and parallel worlds and such. Uh, we also got Star Trek The Next Futurama, which combines those two shows. We have Spielboys, which you know just kind of unpacks Spielberg's legacy. Uh, we got Inside Dads, which is talks about dad <laughs> movies. We got uh, we got uh, I'll show you mine intro. if you show me yours. Yeah, yeah. which is uh, this guy yak yakking with Maggie yeah. May Fish, and they are delightful. Uh, and that's also got bonus episodes there too. We started just making movie dates out of all of our uh out of all of our episodes now we just That's like right. get together and watch the movies first now i don't know when we started doing that but it's like great <laughs> that's what we're doing every episode we every record episode now. just getting yeah. together watching a movie like pals oh i love it i love it, it. Is hey this is the best cute. way to live life is the way i see it movies we're doing our best friends we're definitely so, yeah. doing our best everyone enjoy that and thanks for listening to my weird stupid theory about 
postmodernism in Shrek 2. Oh, it was beautiful. Uh, yeah. I think that's it. That's a uh, episode, right? That's that's enough for me. I'm good Thank- with it. Thanks for listening, my friend, and also you friends out there in the ether. Uh, we're we were happy to do it. And bye.